for all my life, I've thought that democracy in my country, the United States, was firmly rooted in the ground like a tree that could never die, that the idea raised by some at some points in my lifetime that democracy had fragility to it was in the United States uh, hysterical, not in the sense of funny, but in the sense of crazy anxiety talk and that democracy was not ever going to be at risk in the United States. The events of January 6, 2021 made me think that I was actually quite wrong on that. Welcome back to the new series of Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders what they've changed their mind on and why. I'm Alex Chesterfield, behavioural scientist and co-author of Polls Apart. You've just heard from our guest today, Cass Sunstein, Robert Walmsley, University Professor at Harvard, advisor to governments and many other organisations, world famous author of Nudge, as well as many other books, including, most recently, Sludge. He'll be talking to us about what exactly is Sludge and why we should be getting rid of it, and why Cass has changed his mind on the robustness of US democracy. Before we get to that, though, a reminder, our book, Poles Apart, came out last week, branded as essential reading by experts from behavioural science, political science, business and more, it is out now from all good bookshops. For more information, sign up for our email newsletter. We promote this show with Open Democracy to their millions of regular monthly visitors. Sign up at depolarizationproject.com to get regular updates in your inbox about Change My Mind, how to take part in our upcoming show and more. And you can find the back catalogue to our shows and more information on this episode at opendemocracy.net forward slash depolarization project. As always, I'm joined for today's episode by my co-hosts, Ali, CEO of the Depolarization Project based in California. Hi, Alex. Hello, Ali. And Corporate Affairs Director at London First, Laura Osborne. Hi, Alex. Hi, Ali. Hi, Laura. So, Laura and Ali, do you want to describe how the last few weeks have been? Yeah, I'm going to take a little bit of time to talk about S actually, because our, our book came out based on his podcast and the response from so many listeners. And it's had the most fantastic reception, you know, getting branded a, a great book and a refreshing tonic by Matt Chorley from The Times and really quite a big launch party. I think I've been really pleasantly surprised by just how many people are finding it really useful and really keen to understand if they are part of the, the problem in terms of vision. Laura, have you found that from the world of business and in your work and the reactions as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was at a board dinner last night talking to people about it and I was amazed by how much it sort of opens people's eyes when you start to talk about the spillover effects into all different areas of our lives. And I should also say to listeners, we had a a bit of a a life highlight signing some books in Waterstones on Piccadilly, which was a, a lovely moment. So if you haven't got a copy of Poles Apart, please do go and get one. Thank you both. Well, on that note, let's crack on with hearing from Cass And he's actually, I think, probably one of the most prolific authors that I have ever met. Welcome, Cass, to Change My Mind. We wanted to kick off with a question on your latest book. So Nudge, the final edition, which I have got right in front of me, and Sludge, which I believe is out tomorrow. It is indeed. Tell us a bit more about them. Well, Nudge is an effort to come to terms with the phenomenon of 
the explosion of behavioral science over the last decade. And it tries to explore what we might do with respect to health, that's on people's minds, with respect to economic well-being, with respect to happiness. What can we do with respect to all of those things that draws on the latest findings in behavioral science? So we kind of took the book from 2008 and gave it an overhaul, like a home that needs to be remodeled and tried to adapt it to the current situation the world finds itself. There's a lot about climate change and how to handle that with reference to behavioral findings and some nudging so we don't do more and more grave damage to the planet. So that's what that book is focused on. Sludge is about one concrete thing, which is administrative burdens and frictions, things that make it really hard to navigate life, whether it's a form you have to fill out to get medical care that has 10 pages and incomprehensible questions, whether it's something you have to do by using the telephone or the internet to cancel a subscription that you hate, whether it's a matter of waiting in line for a long, long time to get something that you have a right to, or whether it's actually going someplace physically when you kind of don't have time for that to get something that really matters and can help your family do a lot better in the next year than it did in the previous year. So Sludge is about administrative burdens and frictions and barriers that are like little walls that separate us from all sorts of good things. It's very, very timely. I have been trying to cancel a magazine subscription for probably the last four weeks. And even though I'm familiar with Sludge and I know that these small barriers have a disproportionate impact, I still have not managed to, to cancel it. I'm still paying out this magazine subscription that I don't want. So, I mean, that's one example of Sludge. I'm sure our listeners will experience many other types of Sludge in their everyday life. So it's very, very timely. But what is, I guess, one thing that's always interested me is, is what is the line between Sludge and simply clever sales or, or marketing? Well, there's a lot of things that involve clever sales and marketing. So saying uh, you can't afford not to buy this product is clever sales and marketing. There's no sludge there. Or having someone who's charismatic and famous, maybe a movie star, say, I use this and you should too. That's not sludge. So there's a subset of clever marketing, which involves putting up burdens or barriers to something that you really would benefit from and making it super easy to get access to something you really aren't going to benefit from. That's a subcategory of clever marketing, let's call it. And if it's easy to enroll in something, let's say something that makes you a little poorer, but really hard to to disenroll from something. The latter part, that's the sludge element. Governments, by the way, impose a lot of sludge, and they're not always in the marketing business. It might be that to get access to a program, let's say it involves training or education, you have to go through a horror movie of, of sludge. That may be intentional by the designers, or it might be just that the designers thought it was easy because it's easy for them. But for the rest of us, it's a nightmare. Nice. When you said about it could be intentional, can you ever use sludge for good? Is there actually sometimes a benefit to slowing people down or inserting a bit of friction in a particular process? Completely. So if online you're about to, let's say, make a reckless purchase or make what is for many people a reckless choice not to get some benefit that's important, it might say, are you sure you want to? 
That's a little bit of sludge, and it's a pretty good idea. There were in North America, I bet other countries too, efforts at one point to get people to buy lots of encyclopedias, and it was kind of pressure tactics, and a lot of people who bought the encyclopedias, which are very expensive, weren't glad they did in retrospect. So there's a cooling off period by law that you can't buy the encyclopedias from door-to-door sales unless you agree that that was what you wanted to do after a few days. In some countries, to get divorced has some sludge in it. That's not always a wonderful thing for people who really aren't getting along. But in general, it's not an unreasonable thing to make sure a decision of that degree of gravity has some sludge in it so you really know you want to do it. In the United States, we have a problem. You might have heard about gun violence. One thing that has actually worked in reducing gun violence violence is a waiting period before you can get a gun. And the basic idea behind the waiting period is people often get guns when they're mad. And when they're mad, that's probably not a good time to hand them a gun. To give a waiting period actually reduces homicides. Nice. Where do you think sludge could be most reduced? If you had a sludge gun, where would you most aim it at? Where is the area you think it could be in government? in in the private sector that could most benefit from desludging? Number one would be government, and it would be in areas that involve people who are really struggling, either because they're poor or because they're old or because they're sick. And if you are poor or old or sick, sludge is especially awful. There's a, a funny account by someone who had to fill out a lot of forms, uh, someone in his 80s who needed some benefit and the forms from government were lengthy and incomprehensible. And he said with a combination of amusement and disbelief, now they're making me fill out those forms? I'm 86. If I was 46, it wouldn't be so terrible. Now they're choosing to ask me to fill out those forms. So I would hope that governments all over the world, maybe prompted in part by the pandemic, will take a hard look at that amount of sludge that prevents poor people from getting benefits that can make them less poor, that prevents poor kids maybe from getting food or getting economic help or getting some job training or things that are hurting people who are in some physical state because of age or sickness that is making sludge something out of a Stephen King novel. It's interesting. I was a elected councillor for where I live in the UK for four years and I'm just thinking about, you know, we were sitting around trying to make decisions about actually what is going to help the local residents. We always thought about what to add and what to bring fresh to the table. We never had a discussion, actually, what could we take away? What could we stop doing? What could we almost de-sludge that it could actually have a greater net benefit on the people that we're trying to help at the end of the day? It's a great point. The human mind is often drawn to adding stuff when things aren't going well. And the notion of taking stuff away, that's just not intuitive for us. But as you say, that's often the best thing you can do. And during the COVID pandemic, one of the things that's sometimes gone pretty well is governments have desludged. They've thought, we make people go in for an interview to get this and that. Is that really necessary? when maybe they're scared or they are actually sick. And so the interview requirement's taken away. Or we might say telemedicine isn't maybe ideal for some patients. It's good for an in-person visit. But for a lot of patients, telemedicine is excellent and just as good. And we see an explosion of telemedicine and with legal requirements of in-person visits eliminated. And that's a a war on sludge. So I wouldn't say that elimination of sludge really needs to be part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but I wouldn't deny 
or argue with those who say eliminating sludge deserves to be part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Cass, I just wanted to jump back to something that you mentioned much earlier about your your book with what's coming out and climate change and how, I suppose in some ways, how we've ended up in really quite a polarised situation where, you know, how did a climate change denial movement gains some of the traction that it did with what was going on and what I'm, I'm I'm curious about is if you think for campaigners is that a consequence of taking very polarizing campaign actions is that likely to be a side effect of it you know the environmental movement has some people who make the very strident points very stridently I have quite personally have quite a high degree of sympathy for them but do you think that's that's contributed to some of this growth of the climate change denial movement I do. And I think that if you are attacking people and making it seem like you think they're ignorant or stupid or indifferent to something that really matters to the well-being of future generations, then you make them defensive. And defensiveness is not a good start for finding commonality. So to meet people where they are is usually a really good thing in politics. And while some people are confused by the idea of climate change or skeptical or denying the existence, no one is really thrilled about flooding and drought and extreme heat and wildfire. So to focus on concrete problems that in my view, are aggravated by climate change is often a more productive way forward than to say that people in 2100 are, are going to be struggling. So we're observing drought and fire and extreme heat and more all over the world. What can we do to reduce the incidence of those things? And what we can we do to make it so that when they actually happen, fewer people are hurt? That's something which initiates a productive conversation. We spend quite a lot of time thinking about this issue and how it relates to polarisation and campaigning. There are some groups who take very polarising stances, let's maybe move away from climate change, but who have been, certainly in the US and to a certain extent in other places in the world, excluded from some of those going and meeting people where they are. So maybe some of the racial justice issues. Do you think in that context that doing particularly polarising campaigning can be an effective way to change minds? Sometimes, but I, I like, with respect to serious problems, the idea of bringing a wide range of people on board that's respectful, and it also is likely to be more constructive. A potential nominee for the best widely unknown behavioral science research of the last 10 years is an essay called something called Solution Aversion. And the basic idea is if you tell people the solution to a problem that they may or may not recognize will be something they despise, they will deny the existence of the problem. That is, whether a problem exists is often a product of whether they think the solution to it is appealing or terrifying. So a little bit, if you go into the doctor's office and your doctor says, I'm sorry, you have cancer, you're probably going to die today, you might think this doctor knows nothing. But if the doctor says, I'm really sorry, you have cancer, but we have a, a path for you where you're going to be okay or you have a good chance, then you'll be more receptive to the claim that there's a problem. The data, and this isn't a speculation, this is a data, shows that it's exactly the same for climate change. If you tell people the solution to climate change is to abolish automobiles and to have very stiff carbon taxes and to increase energy prices a lot, I'm giving an extreme version, people will say, I don't really think climate change is is true. 
But if you tell them the solution to climate change is much more entrepreneurial activity, investment in solar and wind, unleashing ingenuity of the economy to promote economic growth, then people are much more likely to say, well, climate change, I actually think that is that is real. We'll get hold of that research and put it in the show notes, actually. I think that's I was just about to say that that's news that's news to me. So I'm going to check out the paper and we'll put it on so listeners can uh, read it in their own time. And actually, Cass, that brings us nicely actually onto our next question. I'm conscious of readers that might be very new to the field or newer to the field of behavioral science. And given your wealth of experience, I'm really keen to leverage this wonderful opportunity to talk to you and ask you a couple of, I guess, more general questions on behavioral science. The first one being, what is, or can you say, this might not, this might be, I can't answer this question one, but what is the biggest driver of human behavior? Inertia. That's number one. So if we are right now, let's say, doing something in our life, the idea of doing something different from what we're doing is jarring both because it makes us exert effort and we might not want to do that and because it suggests what we're doing now is bad and we might not want to recognize that. So, of course, people overcome inertia every day, but inertia is a really powerful force. Cass, is there anything that you feel that inertia is particularly impacting your life where you're not doing something because you just almost not quite can't be bothered to change it if I was being ungenerous, but something like that? Yeah, sure. So in this year plus of pandemic, to get me to go someplace other than where I am is really hard. Like to get from one house to another house is much harder than it was. And that's partly, you know, an artifact of what we've experienced, but it's partly just an extreme version of what other people suffer from less, which is inertia. I should say I do go places, but less than I should. There is a time when like going to the local shop feels like a triumph and a massive adventure, though, isn't there, at the minute? Completely. But in the United States now, I'm living in Washington, D.C., as we speak. But to go to New York or to go to California, it's very doable and it's not so terrible. And I do it less than I should. I confess. Okay, so insight number one is inertia, possibly the biggest driver of human behavior. What is something most people wouldn't know about behavioral science? I think what people don't know is captured in a three-letter word, fun. And I mean that in two different ways. First is that behavioral science is really fun. That's improbable that something with the name behavioral science should be fun. But it is. It's funny and it's fun. So if you find out that human beings, you know, when they're told, uh, if you have this operation, 90% of people are fine. People are going to say, I want that operation. People are less likely to have the operation if they're told, if you have the operation, 10% of people are dead. (laughs) Then people don't have the operation. That's The latter is not funny. Death is not funny. But the fact that just how you describe it affects the conclusions of many people, that's fun. And people who do behavioral science often have fun with human foibles. But the more important reason that fun is important and people don't know it about behavioral science is we have increasing evidence that if you want to change behavior, a good way to do so is to make the change fun. So if people think that eating vegetables is kind of dreary and worthy and climate friendly, they might well do it. But if they think that the eating vegetables is really fun because they're delicious and surprisingly tasty, 
then they're more likely to do it. If there's some behavior that you want people to engage in in order to live longer or to contribute something to the world, if they think it's, it's, it's fun, it's going to be a good day, like they're going to laugh and smile a lot, then they're more likely to do it. And the, the research is increasingly demonstrating that fun is a great motivator. We didn't need research to demonstrate that, but that for behavioral science to demonstrate it is not widely known. I'm, I'm struck there's a shop in America called Trader Joe's, which is an excellent supermarket, should any British people get there. But they were selling chocolate hummus for the first time the other day. And I did. I was very struck that that was probably a way to get small children to eat more healthily, which is exactly what you're talking about, I think. And I just wanted to follow up on that quickly with one of the great ways to build divides that seems understudied at the minute is humour and how humour can build empathy between different groups. And I just wondered if you had any both observations on that, if there were any bits of research that you wish had happened or you'd seen happen that people should do to lift that rock a bit more? I'll give you a couple examples, then I'll give you some research. So Amazon sells a product in something called frustration-free packaging. And I noticed that if I buy electric razors, as I do, I can use the frustration-free packaging option. And I completely love it because there's no wires, no plastic. You just open the package and there's an electric razor. And often an electric razor, if you buy it, it has so much packaging that the minutes of of freeing it from the package, you get cut and you don't have fun. It's terrible. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it's terrible. Frustration-free packaging is a joy by comparison. So I looked it up and frustration-free packaging, it's actually green packaging, that there's no solid waste, essentially. There's no plastics. It's on environmental grounds, really positive. And it sounds as if that's why Amazon chose it for economic and environmental reasons. But they call it frustration-free packaging. If they called it green packaging, it would automatically be divisive that some people would think, what's Amazon doing? It's becoming political. And a number of of purchasers would be turned off. Frustration-free packaging is actually truthful and credible, but it also has an environmental goal, which it is promoting. That's one example. Second example comes from Pepsi, where Pepsi sells some of its diet drinks under the name Diet Pepsi and some of its diet drinks under the name Pepsi Max. And in some European countries, Diet Pepsi has done okay, and Pepsi Max has been a spectacular success. I think I know why. The diet Pepsi leads with diet and makes you think, you know, they want me to lose weight. It's kind of political. It's a little paternalistic. Some people think that. Pepsi Max sounds like fun and joyful, and everyone wants Max. And by the way, it's also a diet drink. So that's one where the political connotations, political in the broader sense of diet, is uh, a potential negative for purchasers, where Max, everybody likes that, that, basically, unless it's Max, something that is awful rather than taste. Okay, that's not data. Those are two examples. Here's data. There's a study a few years ago where People were encouraged to buy vegetables by an emphasis on the health qualities, et cetera. And you got roughly, um, this is from recollection, so it's rough, a 14% increase in vegetable uptake through the nudges toward the kind of values of eating more vegetables. But they also did something that emphasized taste and deliciousness. And there you got a 27% increase. Everybody likes taste and deliciousness. 
if it's environmental or based on health, it has a political slash paternalistic feature to it. But to your point about humor, if you do something that induces positive affect, and in New Zealand, by the way, the prime minister has been quite good at this in the context of COVID-19, at least at some crucial moments, you made people laugh by saying that, you know, we're going to have a lockdown, but the Easter bunny is exempt. And that gives a sense of commonality. It's really interesting to think why exactly it is. But if, if you're laughing with someone, you don't care what their political affiliation is, and, and you like them, and you feel recognized by them. And that means that the political stuff sometimes seems a little thin and tinny. We're, we're laughing together. I think I'm definitely with you on the Easter Benny stuff and Jacinda Ardem. I, I do wonder in a European context about the effect of the old Diet Coke adverts, though, and whether Pepsi had the same market opportunity, uh, given just how much Coke had, had stitched it up. <laughs> it's a good point. My understanding is that Pepsi Max has done much better in some places than Diet Pepsi. And the judgment is that its better performance is not because it, or not only because it tastes better. It's that the conception of Max uh, among certain demographic groups is much more appealing than the conception of diet. What behavioural insights, Cass, do you think are most relevant to polarisation? So by that, again, for listeners' clarity, we mean rising hostility between groups. So both what causes it, but also how we might bridge divides. Yeah. So I'm going to give two concepts for you, and they're related, and neither is lovely. One is identity-based cognition, and the other is surprising validators. And I apologize for the non-fun nature of both of those terms. So for identity-based cognition, the idea is that often people's judgments are based on a quick thought, which is what kind of person am I? And that will determine their reaction to information. So if you're the kind of person, let's say, who is very concerned about the environment, if someone says, look, on cost-benefit grounds, this environmental initiative is a loser, you might think, I'm not the kind of person who really listens carefully to that kind of stupid argument that seems like it's monetizing everything. Or if you're someone who is on the far right and you hear something about the need to help certain identified groups, the most recent name for whom turns you off, you might think I'm just not the sort of person who cares about that, at least not in that way. I have my own way. So if cognition is often identity-based, especially for the most polarizing issues, we have both a challenge and an opportunity, which is to meet people in terms of arguments in ways that are compatible with and not an attack on their conception of their identity. And you can take your pick of the issue with respect to climate change, anti-poverty policy. There are ways of doing it that run into the ground because of identity-based cognition. And there are ways of doing it that actually can fly because of identity-based cognition. The term surprising validators actually grows out of my experience in the Obama administration, where I heard a lot of term I hadn't heard before, which is validator, which means who's going to be the validator for our initiative. 
And that didn't mean a scientist who could come up with a ton of numbers. It meant someone outside of government who could say that what we, the Obama administration, were doing is, is good. And to find a validator can often be helpful to depolarization. But if someone who is known to be, let's say, a civil rights advocate says that your civil rights initiative is an excellent thing, then you may not persuade anyone who wasn't persuaded already. So what you want is a surprising validator. That is someone who isn't expected to be favorable toward the initiative in question. If the leader of, let's say, uh, a, a large company that is associated with coal says this climate program is a really good idea, that's a surprising validator. Or if you have someone who's known to be a very right of center law and order type says that this initiative on civil rights is the best thing I've seen in the last 20 years, then, then that's magic. And there's a relationship between surprising validators and identity-based cognition, where the surprising validator might share the identity of the person who is believed to be presumptively skeptical. And then the surprising validator can help at least make the skeptic rethink by thinking, oh gosh, someone like me likes this. Who knew? So is it fair to say then the latter is a surprising validator? Would that be an example of a more novel messenger? Yes. A novel in a particular sense. You could have someone who's a novel messenger in the sense that they're really young and they've never been a messenger before, or they might be a novel messenger in the sense that they're, let's say, an athlete or an actor who's not participated in politics before. But if the novel messenger is surprising, not because of his or her novelty, but because that's not the sort of person who you would expect to think this, that can be very, very think about the factor of surprise that helps us to I guess pay attention and then also learn or listen to that person more than might be otherwise. Have you tried either of these in your own personal life or conversations Cass? I haven't but that's because I'm not a person who's involved in communicating with respect to products and causes very much, some with respect to causes. So when I've been in government my thought is how do we solve a problem? not how do we convince people that our solution is good. And as an academic, I'm kind of stepping back rather than involved. I guess a little bit when I worked on the Obama campaign in the first go-round, I, I did some of this. I was very alert to people who would be skeptical of him on the ground that they thought he might be too left or too African-American or too young. And I would say things that would be designed to make people think that their conception of their own identity was compatible with liking candidate Obama. I can say I did do some knocking on doors in key states in the primaries. And one thing that, to my amazement, clearly worked was not talking about policy in a way that was number intense, but instead making friends with people's dogs. And uh, that for me is really easy. I love dogs and uh, people would see that I love their dog. And then whatever I said was instantly credible, I learned. 
I wasn't faking. I really do love dogs. And I remember more the particular dogs than the particular people, which is testimony to my affection for dogs. But I noticed that the people, once I was patting their dog and sitting somewhat ridiculously on my knees on their floor, they would find me kind of a surprising pro-Obama person who instantly was a little bit of a family member. I love that story. I love it too. It's an interesting update on politicians kissing babies, isn't it? To try and build a rapport through that and probably more effective. Cass, is there anything where you think you would be a surprising messenger for somebody where you've got a view that somebody wouldn't expect you to have? Yes, I love cost-benefit analysis. I don't love it as much as my family, but I love, or as much as my dog, but I love cost-benefit analysis a lot. And because I worked for President Obama, the very few people who follow my work think of me as to the left of center, as I on many issues am. The fact that I love cost-benefit analysis as much as I do is not something that people expect to see. Both academic and policymakers' response to that question. I've been expecting something like, "Yeah, I really like broccoli. I'd be great as a champion for broccoli." Um, <laughs> and instead, you you gave us something very thoughtful and and rigorous. I should um, pass back to Alex to ask the real meat, I guess, of the question from our podcast. Thanks, Ali. So, Cass, as I'm sure you're aware, we ask all our guests about a time that they've changed their mind on a substantive issue, and we can't wait to hear what have you changed your mind on and why. Okay, thank you for that. I'll give two if I may. The first is quite fundamental, and the second is that too, but less so. The very fundamental one is that I now believe the Beatles were better than the Rolling Stones. And I thought for many years that the Rolling Stones were better than the Beatles, but within the last three years, I've listened a lot to John Lennon and Paul McCartney as if they were new, and I've changed my mind on that matter of global and historic importance. Okay, that's a ridiculous example. The other one is actually even more fundamental, and I hope not ridiculous, which is for all my life, I've thought that democracy in my country, the United States, was firmly rooted in the ground like a tree that could never die, that the idea raised by some at some points in my lifetime that democracy had fragility to it was in the United States uh, hysterical, not in the sense of funny, but in the sense of crazy anxiety talk, and that democracy was not ever going to be at risk in the United States. The events of January 6, 2021 made me think that I was actually quite wrong on that, and that democracy, I believe, in the United States is robust and not going to fall, but the roots of the tree in the ground now seem to me less solid, much less solid than I used to think. You know, I really feel I should let the Liverpudlian respond first to either whichever one of those points. I was say, Cass, my mum is from um, Liverpool, so she would be thrilled that you have changed your mind about the Beatles being far better than Rolling Stones. Were they the particular events or was it a gradual build-up to changing your mind? So so was it that you've just re-listened to the music? Like, What was it that made you update your beliefs on the Beatles and Rolling Stones? And then on your latter example, was it just the events of January, so the, the storming of the Capitol building, or was it a more of a, a slow burn and that then triggered or catalyzed that change, that shift? 
slow burn in both cases. So with the Beatles, there was a book a few years ago, which was like a biography of the Beatles. And it knocked my socks off in showing the serendipity of the Beatles' rise to success, that there were various moments when it looked like they wouldn't make it and they could have given up and they didn't. A world without the Beatles came much closer than I had thought to happening. That really interested me, both in terms of culture and in terms of thinking about the arc of human history. So this is the Beatles. It could be true of Winston Churchill or Franklin Delano Roosevelt or any number of actors who played a large role in why things came out the way they did. Having read that book, I just started listening to the Beatles more creativity and uh, at times in Paul, ebullience, and in John, rage. That just struck me as much more a bolt of genius than I had thought before. So it, it took a while, though. There are songs I loved, of course, but to hear them new all these years later, as I tried to, I just thought, man, they, they're better even than the amazing Bad Boys, the Rolling Stones. I think it took probably about 14 months for me to change my mind on that one. On democracy in the United States, it was a slower burn even. So in some of the difficult events we've had, I was extremely skeptical, almost contemptuous of admired friends who thought that the democratic system in the United States could take a serious blow. And it, just as various things happened in our country, the rise of X and Y and Z, and you can fill them in as you like. I'm thinking of private, non-political organizations, mostly right now, seeing what the relationship between social media and the rise of those things, my certainty disintegrated. I wrote something in the New York Review of Books where I struggled with the editor. It was about the rise of Nazism. I struggled with the great editor, Robert Silvers, who's no longer with us, who's a great friend and a hero. He actually thought democracy in the United States was fragile. I didn't. And notwithstanding the title of the essay, which is It Can't Happen Here, the thesis of the essay was It Can't happen here. I said that. I said it with less clarity and confidence because of his questioning than I otherwise would have. Nonetheless, that was the theme. I think that was published in 2017, but I, I wouldn't write it the same way now. And the events of January 6th of 2021 were kind of a culmination of uh, a series of events on the ground. Uh, that I think made clear that those who thought that democracy, even in the United States, it has a degree of fragility to it. We won't say exactly how much, but a degree of fragility to it. They were right all along. And are you surprised that it took something as serious as the storming of the Capitol for you to update your belief? Because I have a degree of self-knowledge, I'm, I'm not surprised. So I'm an optimist by nature. I have a friend who says that everyone has a characterological direction of error. If they're going to err, it's in a certain direction. So some people, you know, their characterological direction of error is toward bluntness. And others are toward timidity. Some others are toward cockiness. Uh, others are toward inertia. My characterological direction of error is optimism. 
And I'm not sad that that's my characterological direction of error, but I'm alert to the fact that if I'm going to err, it's because I'm, I'm too optimistic. And uh, there's a great psychologist, Amos Tversky, who said it's a behavioral economist, one of the founders, a psychologist actually, but still one of the founders of behavioral economics, though a psychologist, had a lot of formal skills. He said he was an optimist, and it's rational to be an optimist, because if you're a pessimist, you suffer twice, which I think is really funny and really true. Once when the bad thing happens, and once when you think about it in advance. So he said, be an optimist, then you'll suffer only once. So I kind of agree with that, but it can get you into trouble when you're attempting to make judgments about what's likely and what's not. And I think I got into trouble in my ability to see risks properly because of my erroneous, though cheerful, excessive optimism. It makes you vulnerable to people taking advantage of you as well. Would that be a maybe uncharitable way to describe what happened on January the 6th? Well, I think I wasn't involved at all in the planning. As in my capacity as government official, I work hard and I hope successfully to see downside risks. It's more predictions in personal life. So in your professional life, you might be optimistic about what's going to happen to your children in the next year, while also thinking as a public official, here are the three things that can go wrong with the suggested course of action. So you can be an optimist without being clueless about people who are seeking to get you to subscribe to a magazine that you really aren't going to enjoy and won't cancel your subscription to after you subscribe. Just before I pass back to Alex, there was one thing about the Rolling Stones that I'm intrigued about. You described them as bad boys and having previously had loyalty to them. Would you have associated with that tag as well? Well, in some ways, I guess. I wouldn't say that I was a lawbreaker, but we all have in our heart a possibility of understanding and agreeing with Bob Dylan's dictum to live outside the law, you must be honest. That's really good. And if you listen to Get Off of My Cloud, one of the all-time great creations of the human spirit, if that doesn't resonate with you, then you probably should look inward a little deeper. So what advice would you give to someone who is trying to change someone, maybe your mind, maybe someone else's mind, and wants to do it ethically? Figure out what they care about and uh, connect your goal to something that they already care about. And that's both useful instrumentally and it's also respectful because you're not thinking they care about something that they don't care about, what's wrong with them which is not very respectful, but instead attaching what you want them to think to something that they already think. This great old book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, has a hilarious chapter on winning arguments, and it says you can't win an argument. Don't try. If you actually win, which is going to be really hard, you win in some technical sense, then they're just going to hate you and not agree with you. Don't try to win an argument. But the author says, sometimes you can make people want to agree with you. And I think that's helpful. And on the ethical side, if you attach what you want them to think or do with something they already care about, that's profoundly ethical. 
we touch on that in the book, actually, your first point about adopting a mindset to understand and genuinely listen and ask open questions versus going in with that mindset of wanting to win and to denigrate and to beat and score points, which pushes you further away. Okay, that is helpful advice. And who would you like to hear from about a time that they changed their mind on an issue? It could be a person living or, or, or dead. My favorite author is A.S. Byatt on the strength of her unbelievably good novel, Possession, which in my view is the greatest novel of the last 50 years. I'd like to hear A.S. Byatt talk about anything, and I'd particularly like to hear her talk about that. Okay. Ali, Caroline, have you read A.S. Byatt? Yes, big fan. Oh, Ooh. well, I'm so, Caroline, I'm so pleased we've got you on this call. I was about to ask if she was still alive, but also maybe for the benefit of our listeners, if you could explain just in a couple of sentences what Possession is about, that would be really helpful. And why you liked it so much as well. Yeah. Possession is a novel, a romance, about a guy, a graduate student, who uncovers in an old dusty book by a great poet an unfinished letter that he had written to some mysterious person that seemed like something like a declaration of potential love. I think that's the right word. And the question is, what was that letter written for? And to whom was the letter written? And it becomes a Sherlock Holmes discovery that this great poet, think, you know, Browning or Wordsworth, had an unknown and unbearably heartbreaking and beautiful, sublime love affair that no one knew about. And the two characters, uh, the great male poet and the also great female poet, are uh, any word is going to be cliche and therefore not serve the novel well, but the cliche, unforgettable is too abstract, but it's not false. And it's about that discovered historical romance. So it's a little bit about how we really don't know the fullness of individuals' lives. And there's a lot going on in there that might be sublime or heartbreaking that we don't have access to, even if we study them well. And while the book is centered, I think it's fair to say, on the romance of the long-dead male and female poets, there's a romance in real time between the discoverer, the young graduate student, and the confident, tall, unbelievable Maud, who also becomes caught up in the story. And the two investigators also have a romance. It plays a lot with the idea of the Garden of Eden and what it means to fall. And in the end, it it gives you an account of the fortunate nature of the fall, which is different from anything in English literature. Well, I was going to say, it feels like I can hear echoes of Milton's Paradise Lost. Completely. The difference being, and this is, you know, very vivid, that the fall and the smell of bitter apples, that's really precious. That's very good. (laughs) And that's a reversal, and Milton didn't quite go there. Cass, a huge thank you and goodbye and can't wait to read Sludge. Thank you so much. A great pleasure. Before we discuss this, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. I'm Peter, the editor-in-chief at Open Democracy. 
We challenge power and encourage democratic debate across the world. Whether that's exposing dodgy COVID contracts in the UK or meeting Trump supporters as they went out to vote in last year's US presidential elections. You can find out more about and support our work at opendemocracy.net. So, Laura, what was the key takeaway for you from that conversation? So it was a really interesting conversation to listen back to. It was fascinating about solution aversion and that being the most unknown behavioural insight. You know, essentially, solution aversion is the idea that people are motivated to deny problems and the scientific evidence supporting the existence of those problems when they are against the solutions, when they don't like what the solutions sound like. And it's a concept that's really relevant to the work that we've done on this podcast and in the book Poles Apart. So Troy Campbell and his colleagues found that people have evaluate scientific evidence based on whether they view its policy implications as politically desirable. And it shows how much we feel about the solutions to a problem shapes our beliefs about the problem. So for example, if you know we think part of the solution is to increase taxes and we don't like increasing taxes, then we won't think that is a good solution. Yeah, I think there was obviously really deep in this interview on behavioural insight, you know, because there's a huge depth of knowledge on the topic to draw on. But I was really struck by how humble he was around the view that he thought that American democracy would survive. And actually, it came, you know, quite close to peril on January the 6th this year with the protests at the Capitol building. And anybody who looked at the faces of the then Vice President Mike Pence and some of the other members of Congress could see that none of them felt safe and none of them felt secure in that building. And that is not something that anybody expects from a durable democracy. And Cass's view was, you know, for people who aren't based in state, his view was not actually that uncommon. You know, people have a lot of faith in the checks and balances of the American system. They were like, no, we'll be able to ride this out. This has happened before. We'll all be okay. And other political scientists were saying, actually, I'm really, I'm really not sure we are. And it was really good to see someone who's such an expert actually recognise that maybe others with, with deeper expertise in his field had been right and that, you know, democracy is, is fragile and needs to be tended. The other thing that, that stood out for me was as he was talking about how the Obama administration, when he was serving in that, were in their in their comms plans, when they were deciding to announce something or it was, they worked on who would be the messenger that delivered something. And they thought about that in terms of who would resonate with an audience. And that's unusual as anybody, this isn't just happened in politics, but, you know, when there's uh, often the who makes announcements and who does the talking is as much dependent on who wants to announce good news and about egos and things within an organization um, rather than about who will be the best person that people want to listen to and who will who will test in effect most effectively. I think there's probably a lot for comms professionals to pick up from that in how they are planning and communicating things. What did you think, Alex? Yeah, very much agree on Cass's humility given his background and credibility in the world of behavioural science. So, yeah, for me personally, it was a wonderful interview to do. But in terms of the, the key thing that stood out for me, it was really that idea of sludge and reducing sludge and linked to that, what we take away or stop to make the world better, not just what we add. And it really made me think about organisations typically in the workplace and how we continuously measure inputs and activity as a, as a measure of success versus outcomes. You know, what is it that we are trying to achieve or change? So, you know, for example, rules are often added, activities are often added to plans. But actually, 
what impact or what difference does that actually make? And the conversation reminds me of a book and research by a, a, a guy called Lydie Klotz on how when we are trying to change things from how they are to how we want them to be, always to remember that one option is to subtract rather than add to what already exists. And that it can be, it's just a very simple way of, of getting from where we are to where we want to be. So subtract or think about what we can remove versus what we can uh, add, which is often the more traditional route to change. That's it from us. We'll be back with another podcast very soon for you, crossing back over to America and speaking to someone whose research has been truly groundbreaking in trying to bridge divides. But before we go, we'd like to remind you that our book, Poles Apart, is out now in all good bookshops, attracting rave reviews and even hit the independence bestseller lists. If you like what you heard and you want to check out our full back catalogue of interviews with leaders about changing their mind, then search for that Change My Mind in your podcast app. Thank you to Open Democracy for their support of the show, to Caroline Crampton for editing, and to Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real, is the music you're about to hear. <laughs>